Uh, big question tonight. How far would you go to belong? I mean, I'm sure many of you would say, well, maybe I'd cut my hair a certain way. Maybe I'd go to the speed limit because everybody else is going to the speed limit. I mean, th- there are some things I would do in order to fit in, to conform. But, I, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to hurt myself or anybody else to conform. But maybe you would. Maybe you would if everybody else was. Maybe you would if an authority figure told you to. And I bet you're more willing than you think you are. Um, I've got a strange fascination uh, with cults. Uh, Maybe it's because I don't want to grow up to be a cult leader. Um, It's pretty dark. uh, But the streaming services, there's no shortage of content highlighting cults. Anybody seen Waco? Uh, Anybody seen Wild Wild Country? I'm going to go way out here. Have I seen Jonestown about Jim Jones on PBS? That might be the scariest one, by the way. Uh, and it's really, I, I don't, I, my fascination, I don't know where, what dark place in my heart that comes from. But all of them show how these harmful leaders lead their people to be destructive towards themselves and to others. They, they seem so fantastical, so extreme, so far-fetched that you'd say there's just no way I would ever be duped. But I would suggest that we're all more gullible than we'd like to admit. We want to fit in, even if we make intentional decisions to not fit in. You might say, well, I would never fit in like that. Well, guess who you fit in with? All the people who made that same decision. And think back to high school. Think about how strong the impulses were, the pressures were to conform. Think about how hard it was and whatever society you are a part of in college if you went to college to fit in or think about uh, if you were the youngest person in your workplace how hard it was not to want to fit in or if you're in a big organization to just get in line see we all we just fear rejection we don't want to be alone we want to be loved so we just go along with things and most of the time it's rather benign it's harmless but other times it's destructive to you and other Brothers and sisters, this is just part of the human condition. We need a group to fit in with, and that's okay. In fact, it's good. And I would take it a step further, and I would say that all these groups have what I would call a creed. A set of beliefs that are commonly held that they subscribe to, and then practices that flow from those beliefs. Sometimes these groups are religious, sometimes they're not. Now, you might bucket the notion that to be a part of a group, that's what it is, but, and I understand that, but as much as you want to break free from this line of thinking because you're an individualistic, pluralistic American, you just can't. You really want to belong. You really want to connect with other people. And to do so, you begin to adopt a set of behaviors and beliefs. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, what kind of group can I join that makes me the most human? What kind of group can I be a part of that leads to human flourishing? Well, that's what we find in 1 Timothy. That's what we find in verses 3 to 11. So let's read it together. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, 
that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And understanding this, that the law is not laid down for just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The word of the Lord. Well, last week we looked at the first two verses from chapter 1. In those first two verses, we find out who writes the letter. And the person who wrote this letter was Paul, and the person he wrote it to was Timothy. Timothy was his young understudy. And Timothy is in Ephesus with this new church. And so now Paul is giving his understudy some instructions on how to lead the church to be a mature community. And so he gets right after it, right there in verse 3. But you've got to know what happened, what got Ephesus started in the first place, the church. Well, if you look at Acts chapter 20 and chapter 19, you'll see the start of the church of Ephesus. And Paul founded it. Timothy was with him. And right before Paul leaves, he gathers all the elders together. And at the end of chapter, chapter 20, he gives them a charge. And some of those words that were in the charge include this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He said that, and five years later it came true. Paul's prediction was spot on. And in Acts 20, Paul says that these fierce wolves from arise from within the church, not the culture. And they would say twisted things that would harm the flock and lead them away from the good shepherd who's Jesus. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul calls Timothy to clean house from these false teachers, from these fierce wolves. And Timothy is to tell these false teachers to be quiet, to unalign themselves with their current beliefs so they might align themselves with the gospel. I think this is a really good word for us. Christians spend a lot of time because they're really afraid of those who are on the outside of the church. And it's true. There really are people and groups and beliefs that are espoused in the wider culture that we must be suspect of as Christians, or they're going to get into our hearts and then they'll be promoted in the church. We need to be vigilant about that. But right alongside our discernment of the culture needs to be our discernment of those who are in the church. See, these people were using the Bible. And what was killing the church at Ephesus were the leaders of the church. They were teaching baloney that promoted speculation. Do you see that in verse 4? And then in verse 3, we see what they are teaching. They're teaching these genealogies and these myths. Well, what are these genealogies and myths? Well, there are these two extra-biblical Jewish documents that existed that were really popular when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And both of these documents 
take the genealogies that you can find in Genesis 4, Genesis 5, and Genesis 11. And both documents take those genealogies, they line them up to show the validity of the first five books of the Bible. They take them to show the indestructibility of the Jews. They take those three genealogies to show how, why God's people need to preserve in this Roman-influenced world of Ephesus. In other words, these two documents that Paul could be referring to here are nationalistic in character. These false teachers are using the Bible, Genesis 4, 5, and 11, to support their politics. Sound familiar to any of you? Now the right and the left, they take different versions of nationalism. And what they do is they appeal to those outside the church, and of course they would, because the ideology that politics gives us that really does answer the big questions in life. Where did I come from? What's my purpose? Where am I going? Well, politics is glad to answer those questions for you. So, of course, people outside the church gravitate towards politics as they give answers to their questions. And politics give people a group to belong to, particularly on the Internet. But if you think nationalism only exists outside the church, you're wrong. It existed in the church of Ephesus, and it has existed in the American church for all of our days. There's a sociologist who happens to be a Christian, and uh, he's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, and he wrote a book called To Change the World. His name's James Hunter. And he talks about that in Christianity, there's this inherent impulse to change the world. We want to make things better as Christians. And because change implies power, what the American church, different parts of the American church, have all embraced either the right or the left, have adopted their nationalistic strategies, their political strategies, to bring about this change. And what he argues for is it just has made things worse. But it doesn't take a 350-page book to come to that conclusion. We see it every day. So where do you stand on all of this? And I'm not calling you to abandon your politics, because that's not what we see in the Scriptures. Paul didn't, he didn't abolish politics. Romans chapter 13. He commands Christians to obey the governing authorities. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What this is, what Timothy was doing with these false teachers and need to do with the rest of the church, and what each of us needs, is that we need to have politics, our political persuasion, unseated from the throne of our heart. It's just so easy to go down the rabbit hole of reading article after article after article, of watching YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video of watching the news for an hour, two hours, and three hours. Why? Because we want to change the world as Christians. But think about this if you're Timothy. For Timothy, these false teachers are real people. <laughs> he knows their names. He knows their kids. For Timothy, he knows the people who have been duped. And he knows the names of their kids. 
And he knows it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge to persuade these false teachers that there's folly. It's going to be a challenge to get those who have embraced their teachings to let go of their teachings. It's going to be a challenge to get support from the rest of the church to kick these false teachers out if they don't change. But Paul doesn't leave him high and dry. Paul gives Timothy a tool to purify the church. In fact, he gives Timothy the same tool that the false teachers are using. He gives them the Old Testament law. He gives them the first five books of the Bible. I mean, I was shocked by this this week. But then you look at it. Look at verses 8 to 10. Just read those to yourself for a second. Look at those long lists. And if you look at that long list long enough, and if you've got some familiarity with the scriptures, you'll see. You'll see the Ten Commandments played out right there. And the false teachers, they were using the law. They were using the scriptures in a way they weren't meant to. They were using it to piece together this nationalistic ideology. But Paul says it's not laid down to make you just. That the law is laid down not for those who think they're just, but those who think they're unjust. I mean, Jesus says roughly the same thing. Luke 5, 32, he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus is saying, well, there's righteous people that I'm not going to call, and then there's sinners I am going to call. What Jesus is saying, I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but I've come to call those who think they're sinners. Same thing here. Paul's saying, if you think you're just, and you want to use the law to make you just or make you more just, that's not what's intended for. What the law was intended for was for you to be convinced that you're unjust. Paul's trying to get Timothy to use the law so that people might begin to label themselves with all these different words. That people might begin to say, I'm lawless, I'm disobedient, I'm ungodly, I'm a sinner, I'm unholy, I'm profane, I've struck my mother or father, I'm a murderer, I'm sexually immoral, I'm a man who practices homosexuality, I'm an enslaver, I'm a liar, I'm a perjurer, and I've done all manner of other things that are contrary to sound doctrine. If Timothy will use the law for that and produces that kind of influence, then he's on the right track. But when the false teachers, when they use the scripture, they're trying to get people rallied up to say, I'm none of those. In fact, that's all those other people that we need to get to be like us. And look at that last verse, verse 11. He goes on that long string. And then he says, this is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. See, when you see this long list, you don't need to be told, you don't need to be exhorted, quit lying. So you're not called a liar. Quit being unjust in your sexuality, you need to be pure. You don't need to be exhorted to stop being unholy. Because exhortation just doesn't work. See, what you need and what I need isn't exhortation, but what we need is the gospel. We don't need directions for how to save ourselves. What we need is to be confronted with our sin and then given a knowledge of the God who saved us. 
And see, essentially what politics does is it comes along and it just gives you a string of exhortations. Do this. Believe this. Then you can be on the inside. That's exactly what the false teachers are doing. But Paul encourages Timothy to do just the opposite. Instead of showing them a path to get into the group, Paul is telling Timothy to convince people that they're on the outside. (laughs) Because that's what the law does. It exposes our sin. And when we know we're on the outside with our sin, we begin to look around. We begin to look around for a way in, and then we find Jesus. And Jesus comes to you when you're on the outside, and he says, you don't have to clean yourself up. All you have to do is look away from yourself, look away from your nation, look away from your political ideology, and look to me, and I'll save you. See, in the end, your nation will not love you back. Give your political persuasion all your time, all your money, all your attention. You can stake your reputation with your politics. And they're not going to love you back. They're not going to save you. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus has what it takes. He came. He lived. He died. And he rose again. And when he does that, when he saves you, it opens you up. (laughs) It opens you up to do the thing that seems impossible when you're confronted with your sin, with the law. It opens you up to love other people. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. See, I told you earlier that every group has a creed, right? Well, here's your creed. Here's the Christian creed, and as succinct as it can go. It says... I am, in, I am made in the image of God. I have marred that image in sin. In love, God has saved me in Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again. And now he's given me the faith to believe in this. That is your creed. There's nothing in that creed that says that you're good. <laughs> All that creed says is that you're a sinner and you're still loved in spite of your sin by God. And that's what can make you a loving person. See, what nationalism does is it makes you arrogant and unloving. See, the church at Ephesus, they were going to need the gospel to ground them if they were going to love one another. See, in Ephesus, you had a bunch of Jews and you had a bunch of Gentiles who were in the same church. They had all been converted to Christianity through Paul's preaching originally. And for them to stay connected was going to be a huge challenge. And so the Jewish Christians, when they got converted, they were a minority in Ephesus. And they, were, they saw the Gentiles as oppressing them. So it was going to be really difficult if you were a Jew to love a Gentile because for your whole life you had always seen them as your oppressor. It would be really hard if you were a Jew to, to, to love the Gentiles because they didn't know anything about the Old Testament. They were flamboyant, flagrant sinners who didn't know any better. So it was going to be really hard if you were a Jew to love a Gentile. 
And for the Gentiles, this could be really hard to love the Jews. I mean, the Jews, they were used to doing the right thing, but they didn't do it with pleasure and love. They, they, they did it with just pure effort. And you know what those kind of people are like. They're miserable to be around. And the Jews were going to be really hard to be around if you were a Gentile because the Jews were used to when they got caught in their sin in their own conscience or by other people. You know what they did. They hid. They were fake with you because they didn't know any better. They had, to put on a, they had to put on a fake face. So you see how hard it would be for the Jews and the Gentiles to get along in the same place. And now this false teaching comes in and it threatens to blow the whole thing up. So no wonder Paul had to be so direct with Timothy. Now I know the, 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 the specific cultural dynamics for us in Lexington in 2021 are quite different from this, but there's something for us here. Because what Paul does is he grounds this community in the gospel. He doesn't ground this community in some generic, fake, overarching philosophy of inclusivity and love. Because the diversity won't be achieved that way. It's not going to be achieved by just working harder at being inclusive. The only thing that's going to bring about real diversity is the gospel. Because the gospel is what enables us to love. The gospel is what enables us to say we're sorry. The gospel is what enables unity. Politics cannot do that. And we've seen that as clearly as we ever have in our recent past, haven't we? So may God... Help us be a healthy people who embrace the gospel and love our neighbors. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we would have never said that we had, uh, uh, we had fallen for uh, genealogies and myths. But, Lord, we have fallen for other gospels. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would show us what those other Gospels have been, and you would show us just how weak they are. So, Lord, help us. Help us embrace our real identity as sinners, but loved ones who can then love our neighbors. We pray this in your name. Amen.